mentions to him this. He says that all scripture is given by inspiration. It means it's God-breathed. It doesn't, it's not like you're an artist and you have inspiration to paint something. It's not what it's talking about. Inspiration means basically to have the breath of God come out. It's kind of like when you talk, you speak, and if you put your hand up here, you'll feel the wind, the breath uh, of your lungs coming out. And that's what basically it's saying. It's the very breath of God that's breathed out. God has spoken, and it's been recorded. And so this spoken word, it's uh, scripture is given by inspiration, the breath of God. And then he says it's profitable. Now, if something's profitable, it means it's good. If something's unprofitable, it means it's not good, right? So very simple. And it's profitable. And it's profitable for some specific things. First, it's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. It basically means what you're to believe. Doctrine is good for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And all of that is good because all of that will help the man of God. He can be complete. In other words, he can be mature. And he's completely or thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished, the old King James says, uh, unto every good work. So the scripture itself says this, when Paul writes this. Now, I want to go into this area of preaching the word, because then Paul says to him in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, Jesus is the one who, will judge the living and the dead, at his appearing in his kingdom. Right there is enough of the gospel. Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Now, some people don't believe that. But you know, facts are facts whether you believe the facts or don't believe the facts. Um, Gravity is a fact. Now, gravity, if you jump out of a plane... That fact is going to grab hold of you unless you have some other fact that can keep you up from falling to the ground. If you have a parachute, you might come, you'll still come down, but slower. But you can deny the fact of gravity all you want, but it's not going to affect the outcome of your life if you jump out of a plane. The fact is that Jesus will. He is the one who's been appointed to judge the living and the dead at his appearing, when he returns, and at his kingdom. So now, Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm charging you. I'm giving you a charge. I'm not a card either. It's a, I'm giving you a command, basically. And that command is this. Preach the word. Be instant or be ready. In season and out of season. When it's convenient, when it's not convenient. At the drop of a hat. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? Because the time will come, and I think it's come, pretty full. The time will come when they will not endure. They won't put up with sound teaching. They won't endure sound doctrine. Uh, they'd rather not have it. But instead of that, according to their own desires, 
because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Now, he's talking about people who are identified as believers. People who are identified as those who are following Christ. They'll heap up for themselves teachers. They'll have itching ears. Have you ever, well, I have. Have you ever had an itch inside your ear, deep down inside, and you can't get to it? You know, they say don't put anything smaller than your elbow in it. I've never figured out how to do that. But have you ever had an itch down in your ear you can't get to? It will drive you nuts. Well, this is what Paul's saying. He says, people will have itching ears. They will want so desperately to hear something to satisfy their craving, their desire. And they'll heap to themselves. They'll pile up teacher after teacher after teacher. And, uh, and in doing that, what they'll do is they will turn their ears away from the truth. See, you, if you're facing the truth here and you're listening, your ears are open to that direction. But if the lie comes from here, you're going to turn around and you're going to face the lie. You're wanting to have somebody teach you something that's not the truth. It's something that you would like to hear, something you will appreciate, something that uh, satisfies you. But it doesn't necessarily do anything that God wants to be done. And so he says... Uh, they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, you Timothy, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions because afflictions will come when you're speaking the truth. Those that hate the truth hate those that speak the truth. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, he's a pastor, but... You're always wanting to speak to people about Christ and their need for Christ. Now, why did I bring this passage up? As we've been working through this series of um, humility, of uh, standing in a place of humility and what that does for us, uh, part of it is when the Word of God comes, how do you receive it? And I, I spoke to you about humility in different circumstances, if you'll remember we spoke about humility uh, in respect to God's word. Well, we're still talking about that here. Then humility in common things. Having an attitude of humility, being willing to learn in the common things of life, things that you see every day, because the scripture tells us to, to look at the world around us. And in, in that, we will see the creative hand of God. We'll see the wisdom of God. We, we will see how majestic God is just by the, the creation that he has made. And so we'll learn from that. So we, we are humble in common things, but then we're also hum, uh, humbled in a, a place called conversation when we speak with people. We have a humble heart when we speak. We, we let people know that we don't have all the answers, that God does, but we don't. And so we humble ourselves and we take a posture of lowliness. I love that song, uh, In Meekness and Lowliness. That's... That's the place where you learn about the Lord. That's the place where you learn about yourself and meekness and lowliness. When you take the yoke of Jesus, he said his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Um, but his yoke can also, when we're walking with Jesus, um, it can really ruffle our feathers at times. That's what his yoke does. So I'm, I'm talking about this in, from the perspective of, of 
God's word and having a humble heart. Now, one of the areas that's probably the most difficult for us as human beings is humility when it comes to correction. Humility when it comes to correction. In fact, Paul talks to Timothy about that. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. To reprove basically means to to bring conviction and to rebuke means to basically bring a correction to people. And... um, but I've found something. I've discovered that I don't like to be corrected. Have you ever noticed that when children at a certain, I don't know what age it is, but there's one word that they always learn before any other word. What's that word? See, everybody knows that word. No. You know why they say no? Because that's their independent little spirit saying, I don't like what you just said. And, or I don't like what you just did. I don't like it. And I'm going to assert my will against what you've said or what you're proposing. And we grow up with that attitude. Even when we come to Christ, we come to Christ in humility and brokenness. We know we're a sinner. We know we need forgiveness. And the only way we can receive forgiveness from God is through his son's death for us and his resurrection. And so we humble ourselves to come into the kingdom of God. We humble ourselves before God. We say, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself. Only you can do that. And so I yield myself to you. But even after we have done that, have you found out that you still can have a stubborn will? A will that doesn't like to be corrected at times. And It's sad, the older we get, the more that becomes evident. Now, I'm going to give you some scriptures. I want to just give you some principles from the scriptures. And um, I want us to look at this from the perspective of correction. Now, I want to take it from a variety of places in the scripture. A lot of it I take from the Old Testament, especially with the kings of Israel. And the reason for that is because when there's leadership like that, the leadership of Israel, uh, God is very clear that he expects something specific from his leaders because as the king goes, so go the people many times. That's the way it is in families. As the, as the father goes many times, that's the direction of the family. As, uh, as the pastor goes in the church, that's the direction of the church. So I want us to look at this from the perspective of correction and, and how do people receive it? And what happens when they don't receive it well? Now, I, I marked down just a couple of things I'm going to give you about correction. And I probably, uh, let, let's look at these first. James, let's go to James. If you have your Bible, go to James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. If you can put it up, I won't have to look it up. James 4, 6 through 10. Now, God asks of us, and he doesn't just ask, he requires of us. Because he is God, he can require something of us. He requires of us that we approach him with a humble spirit. That we have a humble attitude. And in James 4, 6, this is what God says. As he's saying it through James to the church. He gives more grace, God, that's God. Grace, grace is what? It's the unmerited favor of God, but it's more than unmerited favor. What grace is, it's the power to effect what God expects you to do. 
Grace is the power to work in you what God requires. Did you get that? So it's not just unmerited favor. It is that, but it is the unmerited favor with power in it. Power that can, that can give you the ability to overcome. To give you the ability to be victorious in your walk with God. So he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And remember I gave you the illustration, God resists, he puts his hand up, he gives you a, a, a block, you, you can't get around him, you can't get past him. If God's resisting you, guess what? You can't get anything done. Amen. Whether it's in your individual life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your business. If God resists you, no matter how hard you try, you can only go as far as he'll let you go. So he has stopped you. Now, he gives grace to the humble. So if you're going to get grace, you've got to be humble. If you're not humble, you don't get grace. Therefore, submit to God. In other words, you yield yourself to God. You submit to him. You say, yes, God. And not like, yes, God. Not like your kids say, yeah, okay. It's, yes, God. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Keep going. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Wait a minute. I thought you're Christians. Yeah, but Christians sin. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, here's the thing. If an individual is not willing to humble themselves to God, they are double-minded. They're saying, I, I love God. I want to serve God, but I won't yield myself to God. That's double-minded. That's thinking in two different directions, and they're not compatible. Go on to the next verse. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I thought we we're supposed to be happy as Christians. Not if you're in a place of rebellion or, or uh, pride. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will do something. He will. He will. He will. He will will lift you up. So when you're cast down and you can't get, can't get going, you can't get moving, you're, you're in a place where, where you feel like you're just stopped dead in your tracks, humble yourself in the sight of God. And he'll lift you up. So I want us to go from that to 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Just I know these are like proof texting, but I, I, I'm doing it for a reason. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. In other words, it's, there should be a submissive heart attitude in me as a believer. There should be a submissive heart added to you as, as a believer. We should be, have an attitude of, I'm willing to listen to God regardless of where that voice comes from. If it comes from heaven itself, if it comes through a brother or sister, if it comes through a donkey like with Balaam, which he wasn't really wanting to hear from God. But I will listen. Be submissive to one another 
and be clothed with humility. That word clothed, it means to take on the apron of a servant. To be clothed with humility basically means to put on the servant's apron. And a servant does what? He serves. For God, again, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The witness of two men in the scriptures, because it's God's word. God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Now, with that being said, what does that have to do with correction? In order to be corrected, you have to be able to control your emotions. If you, can't, if you don't know how to control your emotions, to bring your emotions under the lordship of Christ, you will not be able to be corrected because you will think that you're right all the time and you won't, you won't recognize that, no, God is always right, even though you may say you do. And what will happen is when you're corrected by someone, you will begin to blame shift. You'll begin to shift the blame. I didn't, the reason I did that is because they did this. The reason I didn't do this is because they didn't do this. So when correction comes to an individual, if, they're, if they don't have a humble heart, they will look for somebody else to blame. It's their fault. I mean, all you have to do is look at Adam and Eve in the garden. First thing they do is start to blame each other, and Adam actually blames God. The reason we're in this mess is because of you, God. If you hadn't, if you hadn't given me the woman... Adam says, I wouldn't be in this trouble. It's all your fault, God. So you begin to blame shift. You begin to justify yourself. You begin to refuse correction. You refuse to hear what somebody says to you. And listen to what it says in Psalm 141.5. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, and it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Let my head not refuse it. What the psalmist is saying, look, if the righteous, if somebody is godly, and I'm acting in an ungodly manner, for them to strike me, in other words, for them to say, wake up. I won't say idiot, but wake up. Get your head on straight. Think about what you're doing. Stop that. He says, it'll be like an oil, refreshing oil to my head. It'll be something that is life-giving to me. And that's the thing that we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that correction from God is life-giving because if you need correction, it means you're going in the wrong direction. If you need correction, it means that there's something out of place, out of kilter in your life. And what God's trying to do is he's trying to set you straight, set you upright, set you in a place where you could walk with him. And if you refuse correction, what you're saying is, I don't want to walk with God. I don't want to be pleasing to God. I would continue to go this way because I think it's better. So, this is one of the things that happens when correction comes to people, if they're not, not humble. I always say, ask yourself three questions when correction comes. Here's three questions. 
First of all, does any part of this remotely true? Is any part of this remotely true? Here's a brother that comes to me and says something about, Wayne, you're being stubborn. Now, I know I'm never stubborn. I, I know that. You all know that I'm never stubborn, right? Right? <laughs> Nobody's giving me an amen. What's going on here? Say what? Okay. Well, if somebody comes to me and says I'm being stubborn, they must have a reason why that they think that's so. Now, they may have an agenda. They may have something in their own heart that's not right, and, and they may just be throwing a stone at me. But they might be right on target. They may have the truth, and I may be blind to it. See, that's the thing about blind spots. You don't see where you're blind. And so if a brother comes to me and he says, you know, Wayne, you're, you're being stubborn about this. Now, there's a way to do that and a way not to. You don't get in somebody's face and, eh, you're being stubborn. But am I willing to say, Lord, is there any truth in this? Examine my own heart before I defend myself. See, if I'm correctable, if I'm teachable, if I'm humble, I will be willing to listen. I'll be honest, I haven't always been willing to listen. But I'm not the only one in this room. I'm not. All of us have been unwilling to listen at one time or another. Growing up, our parents would tell us something. No, not so, not so. You know, we'd argue with them. Tell them they were wrong. I know none of you did that, but I did a lot of that in my life. Second question, does this correction reveal a long-standing character flaw in my life? Is this correction that's coming something that's been evident? It's been evident in my life for a while, but I haven't been willing to recognize it. Have others said the same thing to me in the past, but I just kind of blew it off? So those are a couple of things. Has this fault or sin affected others? This, this being stubborn or whatever the correction is that's coming to you, has it affected other people? You know, I, I, when, when I have somebody that comes to me and they've, let's say they've gone from one job to another job to another job to another job to another job, all within a short period of time, now, there could be a lot of reasons for that. But I, I would tend to think that maybe there's something about your work ethic or maybe the way you present yourself or the way, uh, you know, if that person's always late for church, let's say, are they always late for work? Maybe they are. I don't know. Are they, are they always getting in people's faces? So if here's a guy that's lost three or four or five jobs right in a row, very short time, I have to ask myself, and he says he's a believer. I have to ask myself, maybe there's a pattern here that needs to be addressed to help this brother to where he can overcome whatever it is that he's losing jobs over. But, you know, when you say something to some, somebody about that, they get, a, they get hurt, they get offended. Well, well, you're judging me. How many of you have heard that before? Well, you're not supposed to judge. All right, let me ask you a question. 
Let's take that standard. Your child comes in the house, 10 years old, got muddy shoes on, and begins to tramp through the house. And you say, Johnny, now if you're Johnny, forgive me, Johnny, take your shoes off. And he just keeps tramping right on through the house. And, he, and you say to him, Johnny, you're not being respectful of your mom. She's cleaned everything, or me, or whatever, of the property here. And he turns to you and he says, we're not supposed to judge, you know. I mean, would you take that as a parent? You're judging me. I'm not judging you. I'm simply seeing the dirty shoes and the mud all over the floor. And you're the one wearing the dirty shoes. That's not judging. That's just looking at the facts and saying these are the facts. Right? Right? So, in correction, many times people, and this is true of Christians, I mean, I hate to say it, they don't want to be corrected because it points something out, and you know, as Christians, we're perfect, right? (laughs) Well, we think we are sometimes, or we think we're supposed to be. Well, we're supposed to be holy because he's holy. We're supposed to be pure because he's pure. But the fact is, all of us mess up. And, you know, the scripture says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If a friend comes to you and tells you something about your character, your life, because they care about you and they care about the character of God and they care about your testimony and they say something to you, it may hurt, it may sting, it may wound you. But if they've done it out of love, they've done it for the glory of God, they're being faithful. They're being honest. They're being true to you. Um, so these are some of the things. So uh, as we look at this about correction, I want us to just keep those things in mind. Now we want to go to some Old Testament things. First, I want to go to 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm in Romans. Now I'm in Corinthians now, I uh, recently I've heard, I've heard teaching. I'm not going to say who it is. Some of you may know who it is. But I've heard teaching about a fairly well-known uh, national speaker. And he basically made this statement. Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Have any of you heard that? Or then you know who I'm talking about. Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Now, at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want us to look at something. And I want us to consider this. Now, this is Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth. And he's correcting some things, some issues within the church, both doctrinal and moral issues that he's having to face head on. And um, he says to him in verse 1 of chapter 10, Moreover, brethren... I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He's talking about the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt, uh, out of bondage. They came to the Red Sea, and then they passed through the Red Sea together with Moses. And it says, all were baptized into Moses. In other words, they were identified with Moses as they went through that Red Sea. 
Uh, where am I? There I am. In the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they were identified with Moses in the sea and in the cloud. The cloud was the, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God that came down and led them and directed them. So all of them were identified with Moses. All of them came out of bondage. All of them are going through, uh, through the sea together. And it says this, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So there was a rock that, if you remember, followed. I mean, it went with where the people were at different times. They, they, had, they had no water. One time, God told uh, Moses, the people were complaining and complaining, and God told Moses, Moses, I want you to strike this rock, and water will come out of it. And the people received the water. And so uh, they were refreshed. But that rock represented Christ. Rep it was a representation of what Jesus the Messiah would be like. Um, and so in this thing, in 1 Corinthians, he says uh, in verse 5, but with most of them, the them is the Israelites, God was not well pleased. How do we know he was, wasn't pleased? How do we know that God was not pleased with them? The very next words tell us. God was not pleased with them for or because their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They came out of Egypt. They came out all with Moses. But once they get out of Egypt, the first thing they start doing is saying, man, this is tough out here. We liked it back there where there was leeks and onions. We liked it back there in Egypt. It was, we had a lot more back there, even though they were slaves, but we had a lot more back there. And they start complaining and moaning and groaning about Moses. And because of that, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years they're wandering around. God wasn't pleased with them. How do we know he's not pleased? They all died in the wilderness. That whole generation died off. Because they had just had a rebellious heart towards God. So then let's look at what it says later. Now these things, these things... I'll read it from up there. Now, these things became our examples. Whose examples? The church's examples. Believers' examples. These things that happened to them became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Their desires for evil things instead of the things of God. Go to the next verse. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you remember the golden calf, if you remember the history of Israel. Now, some would say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Wayne. How could we become idolaters? We're Christians. Paul says, don't become idolaters. In other words, when he commands don't, there's the possibility you could. That's why John says in 1 John, uh, my little children, keep yourself, guard yourself, protect yourself against idols. Idols aren't necessarily a golden calf that you bow down to. 
Idols are anything that has your heart. Anything that has your affections and your attentions more than God. An idol is something that you will give your life, you will give whatever, whatever you have to it instead of to God. That's an idol. And so he says, uh, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Next verse. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. That doesn't mean they tripped and fell down. That means they died. Now, I can just hear somebody saying, well, that sounds awfully hard. Man, God is awfully cruel. Do you know what happens if you don't live with God? You will live in eternity separated from God in hell. That is horrible. Being separated from God is horrible. And so what Paul is saying is, look, they did all these things and God dealt with them. He brought punishment on them, not because he hates people, because he loves people, because he knows that if he lets them get away with it, all those who follow will say, well, that's okay. God doesn't care. God doesn't mind. Go for it. Now, Paul is writing to a church, and he's saying, now, this is an example for us believers, not just for them back then, but for us today. So he goes on. Next verse. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Some of them tempted Christ. Go on. Nor complain. Oh, wait a minute. We may not be committing adultery. But how many of us complain? We moan and we groan about how hard life is. We have no conception of how hard life is. What, you want to see how hard life is? You look at Jesus. Look at Jesus when they're flogging him. Looking at, look at him when they're putting him on the tree, crucifying him. You look at the anguish in the Son of Man that he endured for us. That, that is something, if anybody had the right to complain, it was Jesus, and he, he never uttered a word. I like an old saying I heard. I don't remember where I heard it. But, you know, it's, it's Jesus went to the cross as a lamb that was silent, as it says in Isaiah, before his shears. He was silent. We go to the cross kicking and screaming. I don't want to die to this. I don't want to die to this. I've got a right to have this. I've got a right to have that. And we complain as believers, and what Paul is telling the Corinthian church, look, rejoice in God. Look at God, and you will not see anything to complain about. Yes, you might have hardship. Yes, you may have difficulty. It doesn't mean that life is going to be a bed of roses. It means that God has made a way for you to enjoy him forever and forever and forever. And that no hurt, no burden, no, nothing on this earth as far as pain compares to the joy that you'll have in his presence. And so he goes on a little bit further. Now all these things happen to them as examples. It seems like I heard that before, didn't we? And they were written for our admonition. 
upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, it's written there for our learning, to teach us something, to instruct us about something, to correct us. See, because the people of Israel didn't want to be corrected. There were times when they said, no, I don't, we don't want to hear from God. So, therefore, let him who thinks he stands, just keep on standing that way. You're okay. No, that's not what it says. It says, take heed lest he fall. All of us are in danger of misstepping. All of us are in danger of taking a path that's wrong, that can wound us. It may even destroy our faith. It may destroy others along the way. And God knows that. Take heed, be careful, be watchful, lest you fall. Now, with all of that being said about correction, I want us to look. Hi. I just want to give you one example. Let's go to the Old Testament to um, Kings, Second Kings. No, Second Chronicles. I think it's Second Chronicles 14. Second Chronicles 14. We'll look at a man who's a king, King Asa. Second Chronicles, did I say? 14, okay, 14, verse 9. Oh, no wonder I'm in Second Kings, that won't work. Second Chronicles 14, verse 9. Now, you just have to stay with me just because I'm going to try to recap this quickly. Then Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Marisha. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephatha at Marista. Man, I can't get to those. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with few, or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, we are, you are our God. Do not let men prevail against us. So Asa goes out against this large group, the Ethiopians. He's outnumbered, outmanned, but he does something. He recognizes we, we don't have a chance. A snowball in a hot place. We don't have a chance. God, will you help us? Because we know that whether we have a lot or few, you can save us. He had a humble heart. He, had a, he recognized the power of God in his weakness. And so what happens is God delivers him. You can read the story and... Uh, 
So God delivers him. Now, later on, if you go to 2 Chronicles 16.1, Asa had a long, long reign. Up to 35 years, he's reigning in peace. He did all kinds of things. If you read back through the rest of 14 and 15, you'll find that he, he built up Israel. He, he made it stronger. He tore down idols. He did all kinds of great stuff, commendable stuff, worthy things. But now, years go by, and... Chapter, one, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, it says this. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come into Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt at Damascus, saying, let there be a treaty between us. Now, what he does is instead of going to God, he tries to make an alliance with another country to get reinforcements. Completely different from what he did the first time. First time he was humble. The first time he knew, knew very much, I need God. Now he's grown. The kingdom is bigger. Everything's good, but he's got this force coming against him. But instead of going back to God, what he does is he tries to get man's help. The intervention of another king. And so what happens if you go down to verse 7 of chapter 16. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, that means he's a prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God. Therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians, now he's going back to years earlier, were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with a very, very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord... He delivered them into your hands. God's prophet is saying to Asa, look, when you look to the Lord, he came through. You could trust him. But now, instead of looking to the Lord, you look to the help of mankind. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to receive help from people. That's not what it says. What he was doing is as the king, he was supposed to be the leader that always led the people looking to the Lord. And so here's what happens. Verse 9. For the eye, this is still Hanani speaking. He says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, that includes America, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. In other words, look, you've had 35 years of peace because you did the right thing. Now, from this point on, you're going to have wars. So does Asa humble himself? Does he say, God, I am really messed up. 
I am so sorry. No. See, he's being corrected by God, by the prophet of God, that he's messed up. Now, what's he going to do? Look what he says. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison. You know what he did? He locked up the voice of God. That was his attitude. This is the seer. This is God speaking to me. I'll show you where you belong. Locked up, locked away. I don't want to hear you. For he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. So what, what is that showing? Now remember, the things that were written before were written for our admonition. It doesn't matter how successful you are or how successful you've been or how much God has blessed you or how many victories he's given you. You have to walk with him. You have to walk with him day by day, trusting the Lord. And when you mess up, the only, the only good outcome can be to humbly come to God and say, God, I messed up. Please forgive me. Receive correction from the Lord. Receive it from anybody that brings it. If it's the truth, you yield to the truth. I used to get so upset with my daughter. Oh, really, Jenny knew it. As most of you know, my right foot is about 12 pounds heavier than my left foot. Only when I drive. Only when I drive. And I would be going down the road with Jenny and Sherry in the car. And from the back seat, I'd hear, <clears throat> And then if I didn't slow down, it was, Dad, you're speeding. Now, what do you think I wanted to say? I'm the father. Shut your mouth. And guess what I said a few times? I'm your father. I didn't say shut your mouth. Be quiet. You know what that is? That's rebellion against God. That, that's rebellion against God because if I'm being a lawbreaker, it doesn't matter where the correction comes from. It, whether it comes from a child or an older person, it makes no difference. If the truth is the truth, you yield yourself to the truth. You say, yes, you're right. Repent. Stop. Change. Have I always driven the speed limit since then? No. I mean, I'm sad to say I've been doing my utmost to do it. Haven't I, babe? I've been very, I used to scare her to death going into Cleveland. You have to, now, this is not an excuse. I was born with racing blood. I, really, when I was 11 years old, my dad would take me out and we'd go racing up and down Mayfield Hill, 1957, 58. Me on the floor. So I've raced all my life. I mean, all I know is speed. And for me to stop that, it's a discipline. And I don't like that discipline. But what am I going to do? 
Do I want to have God's favor on my life or do I want to have God's correction on my life and rebuke on my life? And maybe he sits me down and says, you know, you won't listen to me. Maybe you'll listen to somebody in a police station or in a prison. Somebody once said, you know, we, we are free to make our choices. But we are not free to choose the consequences of our choices. That's true. We can choose whatever we want, but the consequences are always in God's hands. If we're obedient and humble, God's blessing will be there. If not, there will be a consequence that we may not like. Now, that doesn't mean if you've had difficulties in your life that somehow you're being rebellious. No, because everybody goes through difficulties. That's what we're going to look at next week. Correction in the area of crisis. When you're in crisis, how does God want us to receive correction in crisis? Actually, it's not correction. It's mainly how do we walk in humility in crisis? Well, let's stand together. You guys have done so well. You've been sitting there paying so much attention. I appreciate that. God appreciates that, I'm sure. So let's pray. Father, every one of us, Lord, we need your grace moment by moment, every single second. And I ask you, Lord, would you help us to grow up, to be mature, to come to a place, Lord, where uh, we don't have to be corrected by somebody else, that we hear your still small voice that we're walking with you in such a way, Lord, if we begin to misstep or step in a direction we shouldn't, that we will hear the voice of your Spirit prompting us and that we can yield to you and be obedient to you knowing that we will receive from you the grace that we need to live righteously before you in the power of Jesus and the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. I thank you for your people here. I pray that today would be a blessed day for them, that each one would be able to rest, relax, enjoy the day, enjoy your presence, enjoy family. God, we just submit ourselves to you today and ask that you would guide us and direct us through this coming week that we might walk uprightly before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.